various places in Scripture, we are told what heaven will look like, and we are given a glimpse of what it will sound like. And I don't want to be too much of a compliment to ourselves, but if heaven sounds anything like what we have been able to do this morning in singing praises of hallelujah to our God and the strength and courage that he gives us, it's certainly a place that I want to go to, and I know that you all want to go as well. We're going to meet up there one day. And some of us will get there after someone, well, we'll all get there at the same time, I suppose, but we'll all experience it in the way that God has designed for us, and we will exit this life at different points, and we're okay with that because we're looking forward to a home in heaven that God has provided and promised to the faithful. Invite you to open your Bibles to two places together this morning by way of introduction. The first in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7, and the other in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. So 1 Samuel chapter 7, where we'll spend the majority of our time, but I want to introduce our study by looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning in verse 12 in just a moment. We are so thankful for everyone who is present this morning, from the youngest to the oldest, from those who are parents to those who are children to those who are grandparents. The fact is, is you are here, you are encouraging to us, and we appreciate it. And let me say, as we, over the last few weeks, it seems like our sermons and our Bible classes have kind of lent themselves to a a talk of unsung heroes. We talked about our AV people this morning and the work that they do, but to those of you who are parents and grandparents, especially of young children, and you think that maybe uh, them crying or fussing or whatever in services is a problem, uh, we are glad that they are here, and we are glad that you are here. And as someone said, bring the babies to church services, even if they do fuss, even if they do cry. Some of the adults may fuss and cry as well, uh, and that's, that's understandable sometimes. But we're glad that you're here, and to, the, to those, those of you that are young parents, thank you for the work that you're doing. You are invaluable to the work here at Northfield Boulevard. I want to start in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12 and just read three verses. And verse 14 is where we're really going to focus in on, and Verse 14 is probably the most familiar verse in all of 2 Chronicles for a reason that I'll suggest in just a moment. But in verse 12, we find where the author, the Holy Spirit says, The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land." Verse 14 is kind of the climactic verse of the text, and in many ways of Second Chronicles, one can make the argument. 
because this is the revival text. Whenever we talk about revival, whenever we sing about revival, whenever we ponder the idea of God giving new life to people who have confessed their sin and have acknowledged their wrongdoing, it seems as if we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, and rightly so. Because he says, these are a people who humble themselves. They pray and they seek my face. And they repent by turning from their wicked ways. He says, I will hear from heaven. He says, I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. There are so many different places in the Old Testament, particularly, but also in the New Testament, where we can read about revival, about life coming back to a people because of a holy man or holy individual or a holy group of people, all because of our holy God. And one of those occasions that we can certainly learn about and read about is the revival under Samuel, which is why I've asked you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, where we're going to look at the first dozen or so verses this morning. We are, as students of God's Word, generally familiar with individuals like the Judges or Samuel as we are progressing from that period of time of the Judges and preparing for the time of monarchs. And we are familiar with Samuel and his disappointment in chapter 8 with the people who are going to request a king. But I want to talk about Samuel as an individual who oversees a revival, who does the things that are illustrated in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, and then make the big and early application that that revival can and should happen in our own lives, in that of a congregation, in that of anybody that maybe gets a little bit stagnant or a little bit distressed with the affairs of this life. And so I want to read the first 13 verses and then I want to come back and make some early observations about the background, and then we'll look at three big lessons that we learn. In verse 1, it says, The men of kirjath Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in kirjath Jerem a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to the Lord, there's that returning, that repentance in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asteroids from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. 
For the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And so, verse 13, the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. What a wonderful text. It's got so many different wonderful lines in it, so many different big applications, so many different wonderful accounts of God providing. But one of the things that struck me as I read those 13 verses is how many times, and I didn't bother to count, I know that's surprising, but how many times Samuel is mentioned in those 13 verses? Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. His name is repeated time and again. If God were to write a story about revival in your family or revival in your community or revival in your congregation or a revival in your workplace, would your name be written time and time and time again? Or would my name be used? Or would it just be a cursory glance at me? But Samuel is the key focal point because God is working through Samuel to do good things for these people. And the reason that they need good things happening is because of their sin. They acknowledge so much, as we'll talk about in our study together this morning, that we have sinned, we have done wrong. But I want to start by looking at the background of this text. We are familiar with the book of Judges. And if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, I would encourage you to start studying that book. I believe that we're going to study that as a congregation at some point in the, in the near future, coming future. But as we look at the story of Judges, it's coming to a close where God's people had used their own lives in frequent service to themselves. And if you look for a key theme of Judges, just go to the last statement made where there was no king in those days and the people did what was right in their own eyes, Judges 21, 25. Interestingly enough, that statement is made numerous times throughout the book of Judges because that's the theme. When there's no leadership, when there's nobody directing them to do what was right, rather than them from the bottom up living for the cause of God, they had no one from the top down instructing them about the need to obey God and the people were despondent, were disobedient, and were delayed in their service to the Creator. Samuel comes on the scene at the tail end of the book of Judges. And Samuel comes onto the scene as a servant of God, as God's answer to Israel's problem of unfaithfulness. Go back just a page or two in your Bibles and just briefly glance at verse 24 of chapter 2. He says, Know, my sons, for it is not good uh, that the report that I hear, you make the Lord's people transgress. Now, this is talking about Eli. And you remember 
uh, he did not, uh, this is a, a very uh, sad scene about Eli's children and about his prodigy. And in verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. But the child, Samuel, grew in stature and favor both with the Lord and men. And the man of God came to Eli and said, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your children all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? So the point here seems to be that Samuel is the one who's going to fill the void in the religious or spiritual leadership that had been left because of the judges, at least many of them, in their inability to do what God had asked them to do and to lead the people as effectively as they otherwise could be led. Samuel, as we made reference to just a few moments ago, is the precursor or the predecessor to Israel's first king, as we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Well, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 7, I want us to acknowledge three things that we must do. Three things that are not just shoulds, but three things that are musts. Number one is that we must be committed to God if we're going to experience real renewal. If, as we talked about in our Bible class this morning, we are going to be refreshed as God would have us to be refreshed. To be committed is to be a dedicated individual or is to experience dedication, but it comes with an obligation. Those two things must be married together and must never be separated from one another in order to fully and really depend on what it means to be committed. When we are committed to something, we are dedicated to it. You think about maybe an exercise regimen or a diet. You think about maybe a hobby that you are dedicated to, something that you feel important. Maybe it's something that is an obligation, but you are committed to it because you believe it is important. Look, if you would, particularly at just verse 3 in the text. And look at how it's outlined, the depth of commitment, as there in verse 3. Now, we know that Baals are false gods and that Astroths are false gods, the, the female version. Uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see these Astroth poles where they were poles that were selected, long pieces of trees, uh, and that they would worship those as false gods. And we know that that was incorrect because as is taught about in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. So we're very familiar with that particular concept. But consider, if you would, the depth of commitment is outlined in verse 3. Let's reread verse 3 and make a list of four things here. Number one, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel and he says, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts and put away the foreign gods and the astronauts among you. He says, I want you to get rid of the idols. Now, someone might say as a student of the New Testament that I at least don't have to do that. You know, I don't have to go to my backyard or I don't have to go to the hill place outside of the country and clean up my idols. 
Well, as New Testament students, we would say, not so fast. We just recently studied Colossians chapter 3, and in verse 5, we read that covetousness is idolatry. And so anytime we put something before God, whether it be our jobs, whether it be our friends, it can even be our families, and we say, this is more important than my God, more important than doing what he's asked me to do, I am guilty of idolatry. And we need to make sure that we get rid of those idols because that's what's outlined here as necessary for revival and renewal. Secondly, he says, he says, prepare your hearts for the Lord. Some versions say, fix your heart on God. So we need to fix our heart on God. There's lots of places where our hearts can be, including places that are okay for our hearts to be. Your heart may be focused on your family, your spouse, your children, things that you love and are associated with. But God comes first. Then in verse 3, serve him, and then what's the next word, at least in my version, is only. Serve him alone. Serve him only. We only serve God. And then fourthly, as you read through verse 3, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Then, and only then, will deliverance occur or will deliverance transpire. You know what's interesting? is if you, a number of things that's interesting with this text, but one of the things is if you look at these things that are outlined here as necessary for deliverance and necessary for renewal, it looks an awful lot like Exodus chapter 20, doesn't it? In those introductory verses of what we call and what the Lord calls the Ten Commandments, no other gods before me, no graven images, you do not take the name of the Lord in vain, you do not do any of those things that would disgrace God's name. You put him first. God has to come first. And the the very, it seems to me, challenging thing and frightening thing is that if we're not careful, we can think that we put God first and we are actually putting him second or third or fourth. Ultimately, if God is not first, he's in last place. Because Satan doesn't need us to put him in first place. He just needs a small percentage of our devotion to him, and then he's successful. And that's what's frightening. A person can think, I read my Bible occasionally. Now, come on. I go to church from time to time, or maybe I even go all the time. And we start thinking of ourselves as being more spectacular, more special, more righteous than we really are. We need to make sure that we see ourselves as accurately as possible through the lens through which God wants us to see ourselves with humility. In that, I may be trying to do what's right, but I can guarantee you that there is an area for me to improve. There's something that I can do better in service to my God. And that should be echoed, or as we talked about in our Bible study this morning, let it be said, amen to that. There is room for improvement in my life. I, I, I would almost go so far as to say that if you don't know where the room for improvement is, ask someone else, but you may get more than you bargained for. <laughs> but I think all of us as Christians, as men and women of faith, we agree. I'm not where I want to be spiritually. There is room for me to grow. I must be more committed to God in order to really have renewal in my life and revival in my life. 
So I must be committed to God if I'm going to be renewed, refreshed, or I'm going to have a revival. Secondly, as we think about this particular topic, we must confess our sin to God. Confession of sin is absolutely central to who we are as human beings, but also as creatures in service to our God. It is central to our relationship with God. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember what happened there? Adam and Eve chose to sin. They chose to eat of the fruit of the tree that had been forbidden, that had been instructed, do not eat of this particular tree. And then God comes along to Adam and he says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded to you that you should not eat? Now in verse 12, what should have been verse 12 should have been, Lord, I am sorry, I have done wrong. That's not what verse 12 says, at least in my Bible. Verse 12 is where Adam begins this age-old practice of shifting the blame and making excuses for why he did wrong. Rather than confessing, I've done wrong, he seems to do everything he can to but confess his wrong. Compare that to a text that we studied recently in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, where it says that God is faithful and God is just to forgive us of our sins if we do something about them. You can say, well, we've got to repent about it, and that's true. But the text here and the context of 1 John chapter 1 is that if we confess our sins, we have to be willing to say to our God, I've done wrong, and I'm sorry about that, Lord. And, you know, we talked recently about the importance of praying with thanksgiving and making sure that we don't just ask of our God. Well, let's add yet another component to our prayer life. That if we do not confess to our God that we are sorry that we've done wrong, then we cannot be renewed, refreshed, and revived as taught in this particular passage. Note, if you would, verses 5 through 9, and a list of things that help us to really appreciate confession outlined. Number 1 in verse 5, he says, I will pray to the Lord for you. Number one, there's this act of dedication where we pour out our hearts in repentance in verses five and six. And then when we confess that we have done wrong, and there's nothing wrong, and please don't misquote me, there's nothing absolutely wrong. In fact, there's something very right about public assemblies where we come together and we say, if there's any wrong, forgive us. Forgive us of the wrongs that we've done. We need to include it in our public prayer. Let me say two things. If that's the only time we ever confess wrong, that's not good. And two, if when we pray to God and we say, forgive us of our wrongs, thank you for daily bread, thank you for all the good things you've done, Jesus' name, amen. That's not the confession that seems to be outlined as necessary for renewal in the Old Testament and certainly in New Testament Christianity, because we need to have, shall we say, secondly, real sorrow over sin. 
Their fasting, as outlined here in this particular text, was voluntary. It seems to me, I don't see where God says, now I want you to fast. Now, there are certainly uh, precepts about fasting when you were in sin or uh, relying more on God and less on the physical things when you are in sin, as outlined in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But these people say, we are not eating because of the wrong that we have done. There are times in your life and there are times in my life where where we've not felt like eating because someone has been so sick. We've had such a financial challenge. Someone that we care about is going through such a trouble. You you don't even feel like eating. These people say we are going to fast. And the reason that we're doing so is because we are experiencing real, meaningful sorrow over the sin that we have committed. And I appreciate our brother reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. We won't reread those verses. But Paul says, I'm actually grateful that you are sorry and feeling sorry for the wrong that you have done because it causes you to change and it causes you to make a positive move for the future. When your children do what is wrong or are disobedient and you correct them and they have that face of, huh, I've disappointed my dad or I've disappointed my mom, even though that may pull at your heartstrings, it's a good sign that the child says, I feel bad for what I have done. I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have talked that way. I shouldn't have not shared my toys, whatever the case may be. And you're pleased with your children, not happy, oh, they're feeling bad. I'm so glad my children feel bad. No, but at least my children understand the importance of doing what is right. And now maybe they'll make a better decision going forward. Thirdly, public confession of sin is sometimes necessary. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says that we are to confess our trespasses one to another. That may mean confessing to a brother privately. It may mean a collection of sisters with whom you have a close relationship and the three or four of you get together and pray about your particular weakness or weaknesses. It may be, as we sometimes have in congregations like this and in congregations that I've always been associated with and that you've been associated with, where someone literally comes forward and says, I need to confess that I've done wrong. I've been involved in an activity that I should not have been involved in. And it is such that you all know about it or that some of you know about it. And I want to correct that. And I want to confess that I've done what was wrong. And then fourthly and finally, we see where a consequence or a judgment for sin is accepted. And it seems to me that that's where Samuel really steps in. In verse 8, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, you are familiar with that concept where the people get themselves in a real pickle and then they say, wait a minute now, we need someone to speak up for us and then God will deliver a judge on their behalf to be there to rescue them. So we must be committed to God We must confess our sins to God. And thirdly, to go along with what we talked about in many ways in our Bible class this morning, we must be confident in the Lord's help. Confidence, service to God, boldness need to go hand in hand. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses, chapter 1, I'm sorry, and verse 7 
is a text where I like the New American Standard just a little bit more than I do the New King James. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to a young man who needed to understand the importance of boldness. He says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. The New American Standard uses the idea of timidity. And the idea is, is that we need to be individuals who are not timid. Now, we are not brash. We are not egotistical. We are not over the top. We are not all those things that we shouldn't be. But we are to be confident and bold in the way that we approach God, in the way that we can approach each other for help and for prayer, and that we are confident in God's help because of their commitment and because of their confession Note what God did for Israel. Go back to the text here in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and look particularly at verses 10 and 11. It says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, so literally as he's in the process of doing all these things that are involved in the burnt offering, it says that the Philistines drew near, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder and confused them so that they were overcome and the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back what we understand to be a very significant and far away. Did you see that there are three verbs that the Lord does? Number one, the Lord thundered with loud thunder. Number two, it says that the Lord confused the Philistines. And then three, the Lord drove the Philistines. We today have to be equally confident that God does these three things in 2021. God can thunder, God can confuse our enemies, and God can drive them away. Does that mean that life is going to be easy for us as Christians? And we know the answer, not always. There are times where it will be simple. There are times where it will be straightforward. But there are times where it will be a challenge and it will be a difficulty. And then that brings us to verse 12, where he says to remember this event and these series of events. As was often the case in the Old Testament, they would set up a pillar or a monument or some sort of a memorial to what God has done for them. We even sing songs sometime and say, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And so here's what happens. They raise up a stone of help, a memorial to what God had done, what God was doing, and what they trusted God would do going forward. We do the same thing when we raise up our own stones of help. Now, we may not have in our backyard a stone of Ebenezer. I've been to a number of your houses, and I've not seen the Ebenezer stones at your houses. But I have been to your houses, and I've seen stones of Ebenezer. What I mean by that is simply this. You who are Christians who are doing what God has asked you to do, you realize that your help comes from God. And that's true in the way that you live. It's true in the way that you raise your children. It needs to be true in the way that we treat others. It needs to be true in the way that we go about in our workplace being righteous in service to God. 
So let me close simply with this, and that is our stone of Ebenezer. If we are going to realize that we need renewal, refreshment, and revival, and revival is outlined in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses, 4, verses 12 through 14, as well as 1 Samuel chapter 7, the first 13 verses or so, we need to be committed to God, confess our sins to God, and be confident in his help. What should we do going forward? Let me suggest to you this. Number one, we are to be a people of prayer. Always pray to the Lord for help. Verse 13 is, it seems to me, right for application, where it says, The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. What was Samuel doing all those days? I can guarantee you that of, of the things that he was doing, he was continually praying to the Lord. And as long as we are praying to our God, we as a people of prayer will be revived, refreshed, and renewed in his service. Secondly, when we've done wrong, whether it be simply to our God, and I don't mean that in a, in a callous way, simply, but whether it be only known to our God or known to others, we need to be a people of sorrow. I don't want you to walk away with that the preacher man was talking today said, I need to be sorrowful all the time. No, that's not what I'm suggesting. But I would suggest that in the course of the next, let's just be very, let's be very uh, generous to ourselves. In the course of the next six months, the remainder of 2021, if you're not sorrowful at some point over your sin, then probably something's not right in your spiritual walk. Because when I do wrong, there needs to be a sense of, I am sorry that I've done wrong. I'm sorry that I treated that person that way. I'm sorry I did not take advantage of the opportunity to, to teach that person or to serve my brother when I could have. Or maybe it's something of a public nature that needs to be dealt with. Meaningful sorrow and a pledge to do better with sincerity is key to making a change in our lives and having renewal, refreshment, and revival. And then thirdly, I talked about how indeed we may not have physical stones of Ebenezer in your yard, and that's okay. But I would suggest to incorporate memorials into your prayer life where you go to God in prayer and you pray specifically about what and how God has provided and acknowledge to him, God, you have done this for me this week and uh, you have blessed me this week. You have acknowledged me this week and you have provided for me. And then, if helpful, some of you are writers, those of you that are note takers, those of you that are journal writers, those of you that like to write things down, write down the Ebenezer moments in your life. Write down the times where God provided. Last week in your journal or in, on a post-it note, on a scrap piece of paper that you can put somewhere where you can look at it, God provided for me in this particular way. And it can be small things, it can be big things, because when you're going through a challenge, everything is big. It's one of those things, when you're going through surgery, it's major surgery. But when someone else is going through it, it's minor surgery, right? So when you're going through something, it's major for you. 
and we acknowledge that, and God acknowledges that as well. The fact is, is God is a God of revival under Samuel and under me and under you, and for me, for Samuel, and for you. He wants you to be revived. He wants us as a congregation to be a people of renewal, refreshment, and revival. He wants us to be committed to him, to confess to him, and to be confident in his help. And if you're lacking in one of those areas, then you're lacking in the ability to be renewed, refreshed, and revived. And we would love to help you today. There are three categories of individuals. Well, I suppose you could make the argument for four, three and a half, four categories of people who are present here today. There are individuals who are Christians who are faithful. That is, you're doing what's right. You're not perfect, but you're doing what's right, and you're striving to be as faithful to God as possible. Or you're not a Christian. You've never become a Christian, and you know that you've been putting it off. Maybe you've been thinking about it for the last few weeks. Maybe you've been thinking about it for the last few months. Maybe you've been talking with your parents about it. You're talking with your spouse about it. You're talking with your children about it. Whatever the case may be, you're saying, I I think it's just about time for me to become a Christian and, and to make that commitment to God. We want you to make that choice. A third group would be those who are Christians who acknowledge I'm weak. I'm, I'm not where I need to be, and I need to make some sort of correction. If it's private, do so privately by praying to God. If it's public, come and confess you're wrong. I suppose the fourth group would be those who are innocent, those who aren't even listening right now, those who don't have the capacity to understand what I'm saying, those who are children. But if you're here and you are in sin, either as an errant sinner, as an errant Christian, or as one who's never become a child of God, we hope that you will be revived, refreshed, and renewed today. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.